Welcome to the Practical Employment Law Podcast, a podcast covering all aspects of American employment law. I'm your host, Mark Chumley. If I say whistleblower, what comes to mind? Maybe you think of some of the famous whistleblowers who have been in the media, like Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning, or Deep Throat from Watergate. Or maybe movies come to mind. Hollywood loves whistleblowers, as evidenced by movies like All the President's Men, Silkwood, Serpico, The Insider, Dark Waters, and many more. But what is a whistleblower, and more importantly, what does it have to do with employment law? First things first, in general, a whistleblower is someone who reports illegal, immoral, or unethical behavior that is going on inside of an organization. The reason why we in the employment law world care about this is because there are a great many laws that protect employees from adverse action because they blew the whistle on their employers. In simple terms, many laws protect whistleblowers from being terminated for blowing the whistle. What laws, you may ask? Well, we don't have time to cover them all in a podcast episode because there are so many out there. By way of example, one federal agency, OSHA, enforces the whistleblower provisions of more than 20 different laws. I'll include a link in the show notes to a chart OSHA maintains of their whistleblower protection programs. It's currently 11 pages long, and that's just one agency. Other other agencies enforce other whistleblower protections. Another example is the EEOC. Every workplace rights law, Title VII, the ADA, the ADEA, the FMLA, and all the rest include their own anti-retaliation provisions which protect whistleblowers. But wait, there's more. Almost every state has whistleblower statutes that protect employees from adverse action from reporting various types of wrongdoing. And I should add that while many of these laws start with agency action, pretty much all of them can end up in court as a lawsuit against an employer. Put it all together, and we're talking about a huge set of laws that expose businesses to litigation and potential liability if they make a wrong move. So again, a detailed look at all or even many of the whistleblower laws is beyond our scope, but let's zoom out a bit and get a big picture sense of how whistleblower claims work. The first issue to consider is which employees are protected by various laws and how they are protected. For example, some whistleblower laws apply only to government employees, and some only apply to certain areas, such as workplace safety or really specific issues like reporting water pollution. You may have already figured this out, but at the end of the day, there are so many laws protecting whistleblowers from retaliation that there is usually a good chance that an employee who has reported their employer's misconduct is somehow covered. But let's not move too quickly. The next issue to consider is whether the employee has engaged in protected activity, which is the specific conduct that is protected by the various statutes. Let's look at an easy example of this. Title VII protects employees from retaliation based on participation in an EEO process or opposition to discrimination. This means an employee cannot be retaliated against for filing a charge, for example, which is participation, but also for opposing discriminatory practices, which could include things like complaining to human resources or a manager about discrimination. The participation piece is usually pretty obvious, but the opposition piece can be a little trickier. Issues like timing of the complaint and the knowledge of the decision maker that a complaint was made are critical factual elements in these types of claims. 
Also, complaining about issues like discrimination are on most managers' radar as creating possible issues for them. But other protected complaints, say about issues like safety or violations of federal security laws, may often fall through the cracks. Another point to consider is to whom the whistle was blown. Some laws state that employees are protected for reports to the government or some specific government agency, while other laws also protect reports to company officials and managers. In general, simply making public statements or statements to the media do not qualify for whistleblower protection. So someone like Deep Throat from the Watergate scandal is not the type of whistleblower we are looking at here. The other issue I need to address here is about the merits of the protected complaint. Most whistleblower laws protect good-faith complaints whether or not they have merit. Again, Title VII is a good example. An employee who complains about discrimination is protected even if their complaint is not substantiated as long as the complaint was made in good faith. As a practical matter, it is virtually impossible, short of an outright admission, to prove that an employee's complaint was made in bad faith, so most complaints end up being protected. I can recall a case I handled many years ago that involved an employee of a financial institution who was not a particularly strong performer, to say the least. She was a very low-level employee whose job was mainly data entry. After she had received a few disciplinary write-ups for various issues, she began complaining to her supervisor that the financial institution was violating federal security laws. Ultimately, she ended up filing a lawsuit with whistleblower claims. I can still remember taking her deposition. She could not give any meaningful explanation of what federal security laws were violated by her employer, or what conduct violated the laws, or for that matter how she even became aware of facts that could lead her to conclude that violations had occurred. But she was adamant that violations had occurred and she reported them. Now we ultimately won that case, but it was not based on her failing to make good faith reports of unlawful conduct. That case is probably pretty typical, and most whistleblowers don't lose their cases based on the bad faith argument, except in fairly extreme situations. Where most of these cases are decided are the issues of adverse action and causation. Now, most whistleblower claims require a showing that the employee whistleblower suffered an adverse employment action that was the result of their protected activity. That is, they suffered retaliation for blowing the whistle. The most obvious adverse action is termination of employment, but lesser things like demotion, transfers, and pay cuts qualify as well. Pretty much any negative change may qualify as an adverse action depending on the circumstances. Having said that, it is often a contested area in litigation and courts have not been entirely consistent. For example, a lateral transfer with no pay cut might not appear to be an adverse action, But if it increases the employee's commute by a substantial amount, the employee might argue that it constitutes a de facto pay cut due to the added cost of commuting. And that was an actual argument I had in a case I handled. Also complicating the matter is the fact that some courts have held that only so-called ultimate employment decisions like hiring, termination, and setting pay count as possible adverse actions, while other courts have taken a broader view and basically said anything materially adverse could constitute an adverse action. Now, of course, the biggest issue in most cases is causation. Did the employer take an adverse action because of the employee's whistleblower activity, or was it for another lawful reason? One issue complicating this area is the fact that some whistleblower protection laws require that the protected act 
activity be the sole cause of the adverse action to establish a claim, while others require only that it be a contributing factor. Again, factual issues like timing of the decision and knowledge of the decision-maker of the protected activity are very important in these cases. So that was a very broad overview of the mechanics of whistleblower claims, but another issue I want to touch on is what drives these claims. Now, obviously, some well-intentioned folks out there simply want to do the right thing and stop bad or dangerous conduct. I guess I can buy that. But after practicing law for over 25 years, I must note that I have encountered more cynical reasons. A typical scenario involves an employee who maybe isn't doing a great job and receives some discipline. If the employee is well-informed about whistleblower laws, and many are, it may occur to them that making a complaint will provide them with some measure of job protection, especially if they don't fall into other obviously protected categories. And another thing that drives whistleblower claims is money. There is big money in whistleblower claims. The False Claims Act, which dates back to the Civil War, allows private whistleblowers to initiate lawsuits alleging that defendants, usually their employers, defrauded the federal government. In such suits, the Department of Justice can either decide to intervene in the litigation or decline the case. If the Justice Department declines to intervene, the law allows the whistleblowers to continue litigating on the government's behalf. Whistleblowers who litigate are entitled to a share of the government's recovery, which may be very large. According to Department of Justice statistics, in 2022, False Claims Act cases, also referred to as QUITAM actions, resulted in recoveries totaling $2.2 billion dollars. And 60% of those recoveries were from cases led by private plaintiffs, not the DOJ. And that's actually a significant decrease from 2021 when the recoveries totaled $5.6 billion. So we are talking about serious money here. And by the way, in addition to allowing for these recoveries, the False Claims Act also protects employees from adverse action for their whistleblowing activities. So what are some takeaways for employers? Well, first, be aware of whistleblower and anti-retaliation laws and train managers to spot issues. As I mentioned, this is often the forgotten protected classification. I've heard many managers say things like, whistleblower? I don't know anything about that, but the former employee was always complaining about something. In many cases, the complaining employee is setting up a potential claim whether it's done deliberately or discovered after the fact when they consult with an attorney. In either case, managers need to be trained to spot these issues and react appropriately. Second, employers need to be aware of whistleblower protections in laws that are specific to their business or industry. For example, financial institutions may be covered by different laws with whistleblower provisions than manufacturing companies or oil companies. Some protections like Title VII and OSHA are generally applicable, but there are very specific laws and they may have different standards and protections. Third, employers should be aware of state whistleblower laws in the states where they have employees. Again, these laws vary greatly state to state and should be included in employers' discussions about compliance and litigation avoidance. Fourth, documentation is critical in defending against retaliation and whistleblower claims. As I mentioned, causation is often the key issue in these cases, and establishing the timeline of discipline and the timing of complaints is critical. Good documentation is very helpful if a case gets into litigation. Fifth, 
Even a meritless complaint may be protected, so don't ignore or diminish the significance of complaints. Also, responding carefully to employee complaints can support defenses based on the bad faith argument. Finally, be especially vigilant for whistleblower issues after employees are given compliance, ethics, or similar training. Obviously, these are good things to do, but they often have the effect of getting whistleblower issues on employees' collective radar. This has been the Practical Employment Law Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please watch for future episodes wherever you get podcasts. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you would like to contact me about any aspect of the podcast, my email address is mchumley at kmklaw.com, and my full contact information is in the show notes. This podcast was created for general informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice or a solicitation to provide legal services. Although we attempt to ensure that the podcast is complete, accurate, and up-to-date, we assume no responsibility for its completeness, accuracy, or timeliness. The information in this podcast is not intended to create, and listening to it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. Listeners should not act upon this information without seeking professional legal counsel.